So what comes to your mind when you think of sin? I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of sin. Maybe things like lying or stealing or cheating or drunkenness or pornography, specific sins. Or maybe you think of the fall. Maybe you think of Satan and the garden and Adam and Eve and punishment and eternal death. Well, as we look at today in the chapters 2 and 3 of Hosea, another aspect of sin is presented to us that doesn't normally enter into the equation. I think when we think of our sin, we often think of ourselves. But Hosea, in these chapters, brings out the pain and the grief and the heartache that sin causes. In Hosea chapter 2, the Lord uses and continues to use the parable of Hosea's marriage to Gomer to help us understand the pain that sin brings, not only to the sinner, but to the ones who are sinned against. There's probably no deeper pain that one can inflict on someone more than infidelity in a marriage. And so God uses this picture of the prophet who's a faithful husband, who has married a woman, the Bible says, of whoredom. This faithful prophet has married a prostitute. And she is continually, in a serial manner, cheating on him and committing infidelity. And God's relationship with Israel is often described as a marriage to show that these Israelites, though they had a faithful husband in God, would go and chase after other gods. And what these chapters show us is that, as a wounded husband would feel, it pains God's heart because he is their faithful and loving husband and their Lord. And it's hard to think of a more unloving thing, isn't it, when we read the Old Testament, to think of all that the Lord did for Israel and then for them to run off and chase other gods. As he demonstrated that he was the provider for them to go to other gods and ask them to provide. These gods which weren't even real. But on the other hand, we can think of wonderful stories of faithfulness and loyalty. And I was trying to think of an illustration for this and and what came to mind was, when I was growing up, there was an a evangelist that was very popular, and he was an Assembly of God a, a preacher, and he would come to do programs at our school and in our church. And I probably heard him speak four or five times and give his testimony, and he was a soldier in Vietnam, and he was holding a phosphorus hand grenade, and a bullet struck the hand grenade, and it exploded and, of course, he began to burn. He uh, fell into some water. He continued to burn. They laid him on a stretcher. He burned through that. They laid him in the helicopter, and he was still on fire. He was terribly burned over most of his body, but he survived. And so they took him back to a hospital in the United States with other men who had been disfigured and wounded and, and burned. And he was in a room with those men, and he would watch as their girlfriends and wives would come in and break up with them. He recalled that there was one man who was laying there in the bed, and his wife came in and took one look at him. She took off her wedding ring and threw it on the bed and walked out. And he just knew, when my wife comes in, that's what she's going to do. And he was getting himself ready for this. And his wife came in, and she said, Welcome home, Dave. It's good to see you, and I'm going to be here with you through thick and thin. 
and she stayed there by his side, faithful and loyal until she passed away. And he attributed her love and her faithfulness to him as a miracle that got him through over 60 surgeries. She had made promises, and she remembered her promises even in the difficult times, and she kept her promises. Before the children of Israel went into the promised land, they were given instructions by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen to what it said. You can turn over there if you like to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. This is probably one of the most famous passages in Deuteronomy, maybe even in the whole entire Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. And the Lord said, Hear, O Israel. We call this the Shema because the the first word here in Hebrew is Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You can underline verse 5. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Why would he say that? Why would he say his words are on their heart? Because he wanted those words to be close to them. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So when are we going to talk about God's word with our children? All the time. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Why would we put God's word everywhere? On ourselves, on our doorposts, on our gates because we have to remember As I told these boys before they took the Lord's Supper, I said the reason we do this is so that we won't forget what Jesus did for us. We won't forget God's word. And look what he says in verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, so this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel, the second generation. Deuteronomy means the second telling of the law because the first generation died out, remember? So he's telling it to the next generation, the ones that are going to go into the promised land. And he says, when God brings you in the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. Underline that in your Bible. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Read verse 14 again. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord, your God, in your midst is a jealous God. What does that mean that God's a jealous God? It means he's not willing to share you with anything else. He's like a jealous husband. He's not willing to share his wife with another man. The Lord, your God, in your midst, the one who is with you is a jealous God. And don't go worshiping all these other gods, he says there at the end of 15, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. But here we are, 
In Hosea chapter 2, and the people have gone after other gods. And for generations and generations and generations, they have gone after other gods. And this promiscuity is represented by Gomer, Hosea's wife of unfaithfulness. They have, Israel has forgotten God. And the promised punishment is coming. He told them hundreds of years before, here is what will happen. If you chase after other gods... And don't serve me faithfully, the God who is in your midst, who is a jealous God. And so Hosea chapter 2, you can turn back over there, starts with an ultimatum. From Hosea to Gomer, from the Lord to his people. Hosea says to his children in verse 2 of chapter 2, Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Plead with her, that she put away her whoring from her face. And her adultery from between her breasts. And so Hosea here is asking his children, go talk to your mother and ask her to do something very easy. Ask her to do the most basic, easiest thing to show that she is leaving behind this life. Ask her to wipe off the makeup. Put the whoring away from her face. Ask her to take off the gold necklaces from between her breasts. Start by removing the signs of unfaithfulness. Because if they don't even make a start in the right direction, God is telling Israel there will be consequences. And they will be exposed and put to shame. Look at what happens in verse 3. Put away the look of prostitution and promiscuity, lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and then kill her with thirst. So he's telling the children this ultimatum and what will happen. And then he speaks also of the children. He tells the children that they are going to suffer because they have also gone after other gods. And why have the children gone after other gods? Because they have been raised this way. The waywardness in Israel was generational. Look at verse 4. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. When I first read that, I thought that, that it was uh, the children, which it was just describing that they were children of promiscuity, but in the Hebrew, according to the commentaries, what that is mentioning is that as the mother has gone, so the children have gone. The sin in Israel was committed generation after generation. Why? Because one generation modeled it for the next generation. Trust in Baal for rain. Trust in Baal for the crops to grow. Trust in Baal for the animals to give birth. And there's a lesson there for us, isn't there? How easy it is for us to teach our children what we really trust in. Because children are pretty smart, aren't they? They pick up on it. They know, what we are, they know who we really are. Children have a pretty good uh, way of sniffing out what is real and what is phony. Why? Because they live with us for 24 hours of the day. What are your children learning from you? What are your grandchildren learning from you? Are you striving to model for them what love for the Lord looks like? What faithfulness to the Lord looks like? Are your church values 
the things you talk about in Sunday school, are they the same things as your home values? Do you love God with your time, with your words, with your work, with your tithe? And you realize that the tithe is an easy thing to give. It's easy to give sacrificially and cheerfully if God has your whole heart. But if he doesn't have your whole heart, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you're truly not committed. When it comes down to where the rubber hits the road with our finances, with the things that are the hardest, uh, those areas where it seems the hardest to be uh, obedient, it just sort of tells us where our heart is. Are you committed to his word? Are you committed to God's people, the church? Is your marriage reflecting the gospel to your children? Are you, husband, serving your wife with the unconditional love of Jesus Christ? Wife, are you graciously submitting to the servant leadership of your husband as the church submits to a wonderful Lord and Savior Jesus? Are your children learning the gospel from you because it is your life? Well, God's people here had gone astray. And they were running after other gods. And so you see a word here that marks a transition to show judgment when you read through prophets. And that word is in chapter 6, and that or verse 6, and that word is therefore. Therefore, because of this uh, indictment that he's just read out, he says, therefore, I will build a hedge up, uh, I, will, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. And the picture there is sort of like putting an animal in a cage. The animal wants to run and go free, but yet there are walls there. A hedge has come up around her. And she shall pursue her lovers, verse 7, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. Her plans will be frustrated. And when her plans are frustrated, what will she say? I will go and return to my first husband. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that she was remarried, but that she had been unfaithful. I'm going to go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And what she did not know, look at verse 8. You can see the, the, the pain here. He says, and what she did not know is that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil. It was I who gave her the silver and gold that she lavished on Baal. I'm the one who gave her everything that she has. And then she took those things that I gave her and made offerings with it to Baal. You can hear that pain, can't you? She will come back when Baal stops giving her what she wants. And she'll go back and see what the Lord can do for her. How many of us have done that before? Come to a dead end? Had our plans frustrated? And it was at that moment where we said, well, this isn't working for me. Maybe God will work for me. And you're still for yourself. You're still all about what you want. But if it doesn't pan out over here, let me try religion. God sees right through that. And God says, I've given her everything. Those lovers that she trusted in were never taking care of her. It was God who gave, and God is about to take it all away. Remember that God is the giver of all good things. Whether people acknowledge it or not, God is the giver of every breath you take. And he's so good that whenever we give ourselves to others, when we live a whole life for other things, and when we credit the blessings we have to other things, he's patient and he's kind with us. But his patient and kindness are not forever. With Israel, 
not based upon the words that he gave them spoken by the prophet Moses. And so we see another pronouncement of judgment in verse 9. Therefore, we see the word again. And you can circle that, therefore, as you did the one in verse 6. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time. And I will take back my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. What's about to happen to Israel? Economic distress. Their very physical needs that are being taken care of by God, he's about to take those things away in famine and economic distress. And now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. She was going to be exposed to her enemies. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. If if God were to say to us, I'm taking away Christmas, I'm taking away Easter, I'm taking away Thanksgiving, I'm taking away your culture. I'm stripping them of the things they trust in. I'm stripping them of their cultural identity. It's all going to be destroyed. Verse 12, and I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lover has given me. And he said, I'm going to make them a forest. I'm taking away the, 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 the cultivated lands, and I'm turning them back into wild forests. And they will become the food for the beasts of the field, which shall devour them at the end of verse 12. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to the Baals, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord." It's the interesting thing about Israel's unfaithfulness. Uh, She is compared to a prostitute, but prostitutes wait for customers to come. Israel was a certain kind of prostitute, a different kind of prostitute that went after her lovers. That shows the, 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 uh, the, the intensity of their promiscuity. They had been carefully warned not to forget God. They'd been told all the things they needed to do to remember the Lord their God. But they forgot God. They forgot the one that had provided all they had. And so all of these things are to happen. They forgot God. They walked away. They wanted other lovers. So they were going to make sure they got what they wanted. That's probably the worst thing that the Lord can do is give you exactly what you want. And then we see another therefore coming in verse 14. We saw a therefore in verse 6. We see a therefore in verse 9. And here comes a therefore in verse 14. And we're getting ready, aren't we? According to the formula, there should be more judgment. But here's a surprise in verse 14. There's mercy. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards And I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And that is referring the valley of Achor to where Achan sinned in the conquest that Joshua led. Remember, Achan kept the the treasure in his house to plunder and did not give it all to the Lord. And so his family sinned and they were all stoned. It says, in that valley where Achor was stoned, I'm going to make that a hopeful place. Where there was punishment for sin, now there will be hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. As at the times when she came out of the land of Egypt, we're going to go back to the beginning. The Lord's going to take the initiative. He will woo. He will bring her out. He will speak tenderly. He will give her a vineyard and hope where sin had reigned. He will do something to change Israel's heart towards him. And look at verse 16. And in that day, 
the future fulfillment is what it's talking about. In that day, it's talking about way off, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. God will make her forget Baal and remember him. They forgot Baal, or they forgot God and remembered Baal. Now God will make her forget Baal and remember him. And he says in verse 18, and I will make a covenant for them on that day with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the heavens, and all the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. There's a promise here of renewal and peace and God doing something new that will affect all of the earth from the people to the creeping things. And one day as we'll study in our next study in the book of Revelation, there will be a great forever marriage between God and the people of God. And so verses 19 and 20 are considered some of the most beautiful words in this book. Martin Luther said, these are a six stone wedding ring. Like a a beautiful commitment by God to his people with six precious stones. And I will betroth you to me, the Lord says, to his people forever. That's the first jewel. And I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. Eternal commitment. Righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness, and you will know me, says the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. Remember, we talked about Jezreel last week, meant judged and scattered, but here it means scattered and sown. And I will have mercy on no mercy, the other child. And I will say to the other child, not my people, you are my people. And he shall say to me, you are my God. What is happening here in these verses? All the former curses will be reversed. In chapter 2, we see God rejecting Israel. And then we see him against all odds promising then to renew them. He didn't have to do this, but he chose to do this. God can choose to lavish his love in any way that he chooses, and he does it and shows us this love being lavished on one who does not deserve it, one who has broken his heart, one who's been unfaithful, and yet what does he do? He accomplishes the renewal through redemption. Look at chapter three. And the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man. And is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And they would offer those cakes of raisins to the Baals. And so what does Hosea do? He's been told here by God to go love Gomer again. And so he goes down in verse 2 of chapter 3, and he buys her for 15 shekels of simmer. A silver, excuse me, and a homer and a lethek of barley. Now we don't know who she belonged to. Perhaps she had been enslaved. Perhaps uh, she was working as a sex worker somewhere and had to be bought out of that. 
But there was a price for some, something that had entangled her and ensnared her that Hosea had to go and pay to redeem that which was already his, but had been lost. And when he bought her out of that slavery, he said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. And you shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you faithful. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince or without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. What's he saying there? Because of the sin, there will be consequences. And and that's something to, to really always remember. As my pastor used to say, you can pick your sin, but you can't pick your consequence. And we never know how the sin is going to have effects even down the line and even further down the line. And so there are consequences for their great sin. Moses warned them. God followed through with those consequences. But there is also mercy. And God is merciful. And you may be suffering consequences for decisions that you made 20, 30 years ago. And those consequences are natural. That's just how things work, isn't it? An action uh, has a reaction. There's a cause and there's an effect. But God loves you and God is merciful to you just as he was merciful to Gomer, to Israel. And he comes and he buys them out. He comes and he buys back a people for himself. Even though he owns everything, even though it all belongs to him, for those of us that are in Christ, we belong to him twice. Once because he made us and secondly because he redeemed us. And so there will be consequences for God's people for hundreds and even thousands of years. They will not have a home. They will not be able to worship. But there will come a day, as we're seeing in this prophecy, when it will be fulfilled that God's people, those who pursue him by faith, will seek the Lord. And verse 5 says, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. The picture of Gomer being purchased from slavery is a picture of God's ultimate faithful love. He's been forgotten. And you can hear the pain in his voice as he declares, my people have forgotten me. We live in a time where God is forgotten. Baal is not our idol, but we put our confidence and our trust in other idols, don't we? And we're like Israel. We're like sheep that have all gone astray. And there is a price that must be paid for our sin. Like Gomer, we're enslaved to sin. Jesus said, if you commit sin, you're a slave to it. And we were in bondage, and there was a price that had to be paid for our redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And we can see this picture of what Jesus has done in chapter 3. We are the enslaved ones. And Jesus comes to love us. Though we've been unfaithful, though we've rebelled against him, Jesus comes to pay for our sins. And this is the promise of God. This is what we celebrate here at the Lord's Supper. Is that through the blood of Christ, there is redemption and forgiveness of sins. We have forgotten God. But thank God he has not forgotten his promises. And he has not forgotten us. And so what God does is he takes the rejected and he renews and he redeems anyone who will put their trust in him. If that's you today, 
Someone who has wandered far away from God. Someone who's wandered into unfaithfulness. Here's the promise. If you call on the name of the Lord, he'll save you. That even though because of your sin you've been separated and rejected by God, but he's merciful. Just like verse 14, therefore, I'm going to woo you back. Where you would expect judgment, God shows up with mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the great news, isn't it? Because every single one of us should be relieved by that because we know who we really are. We know what we're really like. And what a beautiful picture of the gospel is God takes the rejected and he renews and he redeems those who put their trust in him. Father, you've shown us through your word today that in these latter days, this promise has been made and this promise has been fulfilled. That Jesus Christ has come and we are like, as it says in Galatians, a new Israel. We are God's people. We are God's kingdom of priests that he's won for himself that we might be a people of God, a royal priesthood, Declaring the praises of him who has loved us and saved us and redeemed us though we deserved that rejection. And so, Father, would you cause these verses to be true in our, in our lives and in our midst today? That we would be a people who remembers you, who, who do, do not forget you. And so help us, Lord, to live all of our lives for Jesus Christ, the one who redeemed us and saved us.